Previously on the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast. Mike, how could you? Don't go into that door. Watch out, there's a car coming. What do you mean it's your baby? Ah! Guys, I've decided I want to be a woman. Welcome to the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast. This is episode eight. Uh, I'm Brian. I'm Ethan. I'm Kent. I'm Michael. And today we're going to continue our discussion of the exploration of the uh, internal uh, mechanisms. I've run out of, I was hoping to find more three-syllable words that I could (laughs) use here. We're going to talk about Mike's stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Mike's delusions of grandeur. Part two. So this is a continuation of um, stuff that you've been exploring for your dissertation to conclude your doctorate. We have to start calling you Dr. Kristoff now? Please don't call me that. Okay. Dr. Mike? (laughs) Please Uh, don't call me that. Dr. Michael Kristoff Esquire, Jr. (laughs) How about just Hubert Esquire? Hubert Esquire, okay. Uh, Yeah, why not? That's as good a name as any. As good a name as any. Cool. We'll start calling you that, Hubert Esquire. Don't forget the Esquire. Esquire. The other part of the project that I haven't really talked about yet on the podcast is that I've tried to incorporate uh, a little bit of a course of study known as body mapping, which is essentially sort of a, it's, it's kind of like an anatomy, physiology, light. The idea was uh, kind of pioneered by a cello teacher who realized that his cello students did not have an accurate conception of what their bodies, how their bodies were structured. He did not have an accurate conception of how their bodies are structured. And this influenced their uh, cello playing. And so the super visible and easy to recognize um, way to look at this is that a cellist uses uh, his or her right arm in order to move the bow across the strings. Some of his students, he realized, imagined that their right arm moved only at the elbow. And they weren't conceiving of the possibility of movement in the wrist or of movement in the uh, shoulder. And especially they weren't conceiving of the fact that the collarbone is also a, an arm joint. And you can, you can your arm moves uh, from the position that the collarbone is attached to the sternum on your um, ribs. And so their movements were very limited. They were overly tense and they sounded like poo. And so the idea is, if you have an accurate understanding of how your body works, you should be able to move more effectively and efficiently. And so the dissertation deals with things like the breathing structures, um, with the actual shape of the tongue and the mouth, the muscles on the face for the amateur. So how does the body mapping relate to like Alexander technique? Um, they're, it's very similar. Um, I guess I would describe the Alexander technique as being most effective when you work with an Alexander teacher who uses um, the power of touch to guide you through a process of motion. Uh, Body mapping, to be a certified body mapping instructor does not require nearly as much study or time uh, or years of school Mm -hmm. as to become a certified Alexander technique instructor. 
And so the body mapping is kind of like Alexander Technique light. Okay. Um, but I think it's still one of the things that Alexander Technique uses, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, very much so. Uh, okay. Yeah, um, I think so. My understanding of Feldenkrais is limited. You know more about that than I do, but yeah, I think so. My, my teacher at Ithaca would have us go through Feldenkrais exercises like once a semester or something, and it developed a habit of checking in with yourself. Mm -hmm. My impression is that Alexander Technique is more like, I'm going to teach you how to sit properly in a chair. Whereas Feldenkrais is more like sit in a chair and now we'll go through these exercises and you'll become much more aware of how you're sitting in the chair. And as you do that, you start to think, oh, wait a minute, I'm actually very uncomfortable. Why am I sitting like this? And that comes in handy a lot as you know we play instruments, especially for us bassoonists sitting in chairs all the time. So there have been a bunch of times where I would be in the middle of you know a very long practice session and just as a habit, my brain would switch over and check in to see how it is that I am sitting and how it is that I'm using my wrists and how much weight is resting on my left wrist and all this kind of stuff. And then I would say, oh, I'm sitting quite uncomfortably and this is going to become a problem. And then I adjust accordingly. And it also happens in normal day-to-day -day life. Like if I'm driving around, oh, wait, I'm sitting quite uncomfortably in the car or if I'm just sitting around watching TV or whatever. When I first started at, at Metro, my first four students all had wrist problems and so spent a ton of time trying to guide them through some of this process and I'm not a certified Alexander Technique instructor but you know I took some lessons and I picked up a few things um, but the thing that seems most consistently to have been effective uh, is to condition yourself and to strengthen your arm and to strengthen your your wrists um, there was another student at CU a uh, young lady that was there, and I cannot remember her name, who went through a period of pain and ended up doing like physical exercises uh, in order to, to strengthen her arm. And when she came back, yes, she changed a little bit of how she was approaching the instrument physically, but largely just being a little bit more in shape helped her hmm. a lot. Oh. And I've got a, a student right now who's going through that and is seeing some good results as well. I've wondered about that. I wondered if you bought those like hand strengtheners, those good for things, if that would actually help. The answer is somewhat. At Ithaca, Ithaca's got a very good physical therapy program, really good school, and the head of the school would come over to the music building and be amazed at the weird injuries musicians get um, and how frequently we get them. And so he would come in and he worked with us uh, on a number of exercises. I remember a couple of them were particularly interesting because instead of stretching muscles, we were stretching nerves. So there would be this fairly simple exercise where you stick your arm out, uh, fingers up, and I think you would do it palm away from you, like you're Iron Man and you're going to shoot somebody. And then you use your other hand to pull your fingers backwards a little bit towards yeah. you. And normally you do this and you can feel your muscles stretch in your forearm and your wrist. There was a certain way of doing this to adjust something or another someplace where you would feel your nerve stretching. And it, was, mm. it would be a little tingly, a little electric. And it was an exercise designed to help guard against all the different kind of wrist injuries that bassoonists get. There was a study done maybe eight years ago, um, just sort of interviewing orchestra musicians, professional orchestra, orchestra musicians, and something like 75% of professional orchestra musicians report having 
experienced an injury so severe that they had to take time away from wow. the instrument. So either instruments are inherently dangerous or nobody is really paying attention to what they're um, doing, how they're interacting. Yeah, the I think instrument. the PC way to say it is that um, too often musicians are not aware of the dangers of the repetitive motions mm. necessary to practice the instrument and are not uh, conditioning their bodies in order to withstand those injuries. Huh. Playing music is a very athletic thing in very small ways, but very intense ways, and so many musicians are pathetic little dweebs. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you keep that part in the <laughs> podcast. <laughs> This episode of the Boulder Bassoon Quartet podcast is brought to you by Forests Music. That's forests with two R's, music.com. They have just about everything you need if you're an oboe or bassoon player, from uh, sheet music, tools, recordings, to the instruments themselves. And remember that one of the recordings they have now is our very own From the Opposite Shore. That's our first album by the Boulder Bassoon Quartet. Head on over to forestsmusic.com. So what are you gonna do with your dissertation when you're done? You gonna publish it, make a book? No, I'm gonna put it on a shelf and let it be. Maybe sometimes I'll use it. Go uh, to therapy, forget that it happened. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) some of that. Might use it in my teaching, but I don't really have any plans to publish it. I don't see a huge demand for it. Is there any audio stuff we could add to the podcast? Um, Something you wanna demonstrate? I could demonstrate some of the grossness. Okay, so high register. Let's pretend um, that your student pinches too much, too tight of an embouchure in the high register, and the sound is um, uh, nasally and not very vibrant. That sounds nasally and not very vibrant to me. Fix it. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, I'll ask them to do this exercise uh, where they purposefully try to keep the airflow approximately the same and purposefully try to relax the amateur. And they're going to do this uh, to the point that the pitch will sag very, very, very badly, even to the point that it will start exploring um, multiphonics underneath. Once they hear the multiphonic, then the idea is to try to increase the airflow alone without without uh, adding more tension to the amateur and allow the airflow to bring the pitch up to the, the point that you want to hear it. So you just change that pitch solely with your air and your embouchure and everything internally and not by moving your fingers at all. Oh yeah, definitely no finger movement at all. And um, the idea is to try to isolate 
uh, one thing at a time. So first I changed the pitch with the amateur only. Then I tried to change the pitch with the air only. It's not quite so cleanly and neatly divided, um, but the idea, again, is to sort of guide the student through the exploration of, of finding balance points that are more effective. Have you guys ever done exercises like this before? I've done some of that earlier on. It hasn't been for a long time, though. I'm not sure if I was ever as disciplined as I needed to be. Like, you know, every day I spent 20 minutes just trying to isolate tendencies, but I used to do some of that stuff earlier on. Yeah, I remember when I was first studying with, with uh, Yoshi, and it was there was a lot of, um, a lot of, oh, you sound really pinched type type stuff like you, it sounds like the, the sound is really thin or really like pinched especially in the high register so I, I did do some exercises with that type of stuff definitely not to the level of like isolating aperture versus oral cavity but you know the general sense of like keep your oral cavity slash embouchure open I think it was in junior high I went to some chamber music camp at Fredonia and they worked us through similar sorts of things where you experiment with how much of the reed you put in your mouth and then you just use a breath attack so when you've got very little reed in your mouth a breath attack is easier and then you go farther and farther in to the point where you know you see if you can even get the thing to speak when you've got the first wire in your mouth and even the second wire and everybody would giggle and everything oh listen to that sound oh um and then a big one in college was uh, instead of what you, what you just did for that high C, but instead of that one, we would do the C in the middle of the staff. So we play that C and then drop your jaw and let the pitch sag as much as possible. And then when it gets down there, you keep your jaw lowered and you keep your embouchure loose and everything as open as possible. And then you increase your air support to bring the pitch back up. And it would create a much more vibrant, bigger reverberant sound um, and then we would try to stretch that up a scale. So as soon as you've established that big sound, you keep it and then you go up a scale. And another one that also helped was to do that while sitting at a piano and you put your foot on the suspension pedal. You don't touch any of the keys, uh, but you just see by playing how many of the strings of the piano you can get to start to vibrate. And the more you get, the richer your own overtones are and the bigger, better sound that you get. Yeah, that's the sympathetic vibrations sympathetic. in the overtone. Yeah. Oh, um, oh. They're sympathetic. I'll help you out as soon as. Yeah, well, let's just go with that. Have you ever studied singing? Sure, a little bit. I mean, I mean, you know, a difference between singing in church youth choir versus working one-on-one -on -one with a voice teacher that especially talks about uh, the physiology of singing? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've, I've done a little bit of both. I, I did have a voice class in college uh, and worked with that, and I have sung a lot in choirs, but I haven't had a whole lot of work um, with a voice teacher. Um, however, I have spoken a little bit with one of the voice professors at Metro where I teach and uh, he is particularly interested in the acoustic 
phenomenon that happen when you change uh, the position of your tongue and he's particularly interested in the formants uh, that are created. The what? Yeah, exactly. Uh -oh. um, so formants uh, deal with uh, overtones and um, speech therapists are very interested in formants because it helps determine um, the vowels that, that we create. Um, what, what, what is a formant? I'll ask Siri. <laughs> Uh, it, it has to do with the, um, the overtones that are created based on the resonance inside of your mouth. Um, and so but you, the formant is the sound? The formant is the, like the richness and the overtones. So, for example, I can, I can sing um, the same pitch with different vowels. A, E, I, O... The fundamental pitch is the same all the way across, whatever that pitch was. Uh, but it's the um, particular proportions of overtones uh, in the formant that helps determine the vowel sounds that you hear. Formants are defined by Gunnar Fant as the spectral peaks of the sound spectrum. In acoustics generally, a very similar definition is widely used. Uh, a range of frequencies in which there is an absolute or relative maximum in the sound spectrum. So, what? <laughs> uh, it essentially just means, um, if you're at all familiar with uh, acoustic overtone science, science uh, for each fundamental pitch that you hear, there are also secondary frequencies that are uh, occurring the relationship between which of those secondary frequencies is louder than the others helps determine the tone quality of the sound. The fundamental pitch stays the same, but the vowel sound can change if we're talking about speech. Hmm. And so singers are interested in formants as it relates to creating a fundamental pitch with your vocal cords and yet shaping that both for the type of sound that you want and also for the literal vowel that you want to be singing in performance. And so in as much as my paper deals with uh, changing the position of your tongue in order to change the shape of your um, oral cavity, this is related a little bit to the formants. And the reason for wanting in bassoon playing to change your shape of your oral cavity is to deal with those formants and to create um, not the fundamental pitch changes, but the uh, overtone changes that will help create a more beautiful sound. Is there anybody who plays with a certain tone that best embodies what you're going after here? I think the idea of what I hope to communicate through the paper is not so much thou shalt sound like this, but rather thou shalt take the time to explore the possibilities of sounds available to you and choose the one that you want to sound like. Um, and so... Well, you can't really choose so much as fully develop your own sound. Because, like, I could go, I could spend all my time trying to sound like Michael Sweeney, but I'll never sound like Michael Sweeney. Right. I'll sound like an improved version of me. If I take your bassoon and your vocal and your reed, I'm still going to sound more like me than right. I sound like well, you. Well, I mean, that's part of the physical... The physical... Okay, so some of that is purely physical. Uh, 
your body is a different uh, shape than mine is. Your lips are different shape than mine are. Your oropharyngeal cavity is different than mine. Your and so, body is a wonderland. <laughs> well, my body is a wonderland. I'm not prepared to speak for yours. The other part of the issue is that uh, we both have different concepts of sound. You've, um, you've practiced and you've trained your body and your breathing structures and your amateur uh, to do particular things in order to create the sound that you have developed for yourself. Um, and that's going to, that is going to transfer to my read and my vocal and my instrument. Um, all of this to say, you asked me, is there a bassoonist whose sound embodies everything that I'm talking about? And the answer is there are many, many, many bassoonists whose different sounds and different uh, concepts of, of tone quality embody what I'm talking about. Um, people who play well and who play beautifully do all of this stuff to some degree or another.